Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to worship for the second Sunday in Lent. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service is on our printed order of service today. This is an all-age service, so there's no Sunday school or Bible class, but uh, if there are any wee ones who need to run around... And... Thank you, Anne. Our opening words of scripture this morning come from Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As it's Lent, and as I was getting way too far ahead of myself in choosing hymns, we've got one of the same hymns we had last week, but what the heck, we don't get to sing it very often. 40 days and 40 nights you were fasting in the wild. Father God, we are here. We come before you just as we are. We come in our weakness, seeking your strength. We bring our concerns and our worries. We bring our accomplishments and joy. And we bow before you. Father God, we are here. We come to give you thanks and to remember all your wonderful deeds spanning from creation to this present day. We are thankful for your presence in our lives. We are thankful that you know our names. We are just in awe, even though we feel you love us still. We have come together to lift you high and to sing your praises, proclaiming your unfailing love, your faithfulness, which continues forever. Father God, we are here. Hear us as we unite to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Please pray in whatever version or language is most dear to you. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power and glory, forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him.
I wonder who's read the book Through the Looking Glass. Anybody familiar with that Lewis Carroll book? A few people. That's all right, then. It's not totally going to be new for everybody. I wonder if any of the younger people are good at running. Anybody good at running? Oh, fantastic. Well, if you're really good at running, can you come and stand here? And we're going to see if you can run on the spot while I tell this story. Because it's a story that's all about running. And if you kind of get too tired and you need to stop, that's fine. But please don't shout out because I won't hear me talking over you. So if you fancy running, that's great. If you don't want to run, that's fine. Okay, so running on the spot. Ready, steady, go. Alice never could quite make out in thinking about it afterwards how it was that they began. All she remembers is they were running hand in hand and the Queen went so fast it was all she could do with, to keep up with her. And still the Queen kept crying, faster, faster! But Alice felt she could not go faster, though she had no breath left to say so. The most curious part of the thing was that the trees and other things round them never changed their places at all. However fast they went, they never seemed to pass anything. I wonder if all the things move along with us, thought poor puzzled Alice. And the Queen seemed to guess her thoughts, for she cried, faster! Don't try to talk. Not that Alice had any intention of doing that. She felt as if she'd never be able to talk again. She was getting so out of breath. And still the Queen cried, faster, faster, and dragged her along. Are we nearly there? Alice managed to pant at last. Nearly there, the Queen repeated. Why, we passed it ten minutes ago. Faster! And they ran for a time in silence, with the wind whistling in Alice's ears and almost blowing her hair off her head. Now, now, cried the Queen, faster, faster. And they went so fast, at last, they seemed to skim through the air, hardly touching the ground with their feet, till suddenly, just as Alice was getting quite exhausted, they stopped. And she found herself sitting on the ground, breathless, and giddy. The Queen propped her up against a tree and said kindly, you may rest a little now. Alice looked around her in great surprise. Why, I do believe we've been under this tree the whole time. Everything's just as it was. Of course it is, says the Queen. What else would you have it be? Well, in our country, said Alice, still panting a little, you generally get to somewhere else if you ran very fast for a long time, as we've been doing. A slow sort of country, said the Queen. Now, here, you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. I'd rather not try, please, said Alice. I'm quite content to stay here. Life can be a bit like the Queen's race, can't it? We run faster and faster and we just don't get wherever it is we want to be going. And one of the things about Lent, ideally, in theory, is it gives us a space to slow down a bit, to be in a slow sort of a country. A country where perhaps... We can wonder and stare. In the three synoptic Gospels, we're told that after his baptism, Jesus spent a period of time alone, during which he experienced very strong temptations. And while Mark makes only passing reference to this, 
Both Matthew and Luke offer us a series of three forms that the temptations took. They present them in a slightly different order, and there are small but not insignificant differences in the detail. But our focus today lies very much in the Gospel of Matthew. In the first temptation, which comes towards the end of Jesus' time of prayer and fasting, he's hungry. In fact, he's described as starving or famished. He'd really like something to eat. And in this verse, somebody referred to as the tempter comes to him. And whether literally or in a hunger-induced vision, he says to him, see these stones? Turn them into bread. I wonder how we understand that temptation. Is it a temptation to exert supernatural supernatural power to satisfy his own immediate needs? You know, I'm hungry, I'm divine. I could turn this into bread. But then, if I'm divine, I could just make myself not hungry, couldn't I? Or is it, as is sometimes suggested when we explore the parallel in Luke, a temptation to solve all the practical needs of the world by supernatural power? There are people out there who are hungry. So actually, I could turn stones into bread. I could feed them just like that. But then, why not just make food? Why not just banish hunger if that's what you can do because you're divine? In Matthew's account, we get a few extra words compared with Luke. What Matthew has Jesus say is this, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of course, he could solve the problem of hunger and famine once and for all, But that's not the only kind of hunger, is it? People are hungry to be welcomed, to be accepted, to be forgiven, to be loved, to have a home, to have hope. You see, meeting the physical needs is really good. It's really important. And yes, it's what God wants us to do. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to fix the physical problems. We are whole people with hearts and minds and souls and spirits meshed together. And our whole beings need to be fed. And our whole communities and our whole world needs to be fed. And I think part of the mystery is is as we are fed spiritually and intellectually, as we learn more of God and of Jesus, and as we experience more of God and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit, it becomes possible for us to change society. Addressing injustice, dealing with exclusion, questioning the issues that need to be questioned in our own society. In order to survive, of course, we need food and water and shelter and clothing. Good old Maslow, he knew something anyway. But in order to thrive, we also need community and compassion and hope. Now, we can't turn stones into bread, but maybe we can turn pebbles into little gifts of hope. Has anybody come across when you've been out walking little pebbles with things painted on them or messages written on them. Yeah, a few people have found them. It's a really nice idea, isn't it, that people take a pebble and they write or draw something on it and then they leave it for people to find. I have a friend who lives in Warrington who, very sadly, lost her husband a few years ago. He died suddenly. And around about um, an anniversary of his death, she was out walking and she stumbled across a pebble. And I don't remember what the words were, but it was an encouragement for her. 
So what I'm going to invite you to do um, is you've got a pebble on your chair and pens either on your chair or near your chair. And just for a minute or so, no longer, to either draw something, so it might be a smiley face or a love heart or something like that, or a word or a very short sentence that might bring hope to somebody. And then we're going to gather all those up. And I'm going to get a couple of the young folks to come and gather those up for us in baskets. Um, Bardia and Bobby Lee, would you like to take the baskets around and collect the pebbles when people have done what they want to do? Do you want to pop your pebble in? Just go around and collect up the pebbles. That would be wonderful. And then we will, when that's done, we will sing again. And so as we collect up our pebbles, let's sing again, wonder and stare. The Bible says it, I believe it, that proves it. Have you ever heard somebody say that, or something like it? Because I certainly have. The Bible is the infallible word of God, say some Christians, and they get ever so twitchy and ever so irritable if you actually say, have you actually noticed there's a difference between that and that, or even I hate to tell you this, St. Paul contradicts himself within the same letter. Deary me. The second temptation of Jesus, we see in miniature what happens when people start trading proof texts. Taking a verse of scripture out of context and trying to squeeze it in to a different situation. In this second temptation, the name Matthew gives to the one doing the tempting is the devil. So we had the tempter, now we have the devil. And the temptation here, oh, it's ever so spiritual. Look, here's a verse of scripture to support it. Look, you're up on this roof and you can jump off and you're not gonna die because God's gonna send angels to catch you. Haven't you read this psalm? This is what it says. And just think what a wonder that would be. Everybody would stare, they'd be amazed. And they'd know who you were. You see, the temptation is not just the temptation, literally, to jump off the temple. The temptation is to take a verse of scripture and try and make it fit where it doesn't. Proof texts are used by Christians to form or inform all sorts of ethical frameworks. People find a proof text to support the model of atonement that suits them best. Proof texts have been used to justify slavery, to justify the exclusion of women from the pulpit, to justify the way we treat those whose gender or sexuality is different from the majority norm, to support genocide or xenophobia and all sorts of other things. Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. The scriptures are not proof texts that you pull out to do some kind of spiritual top trumps game. I don't know if people still play top trumps. Do they still play top trumps? Yeah, they do. You know, so like, my scripture, 10 points. Your scripture, 8 points. Ha, mine wins. It's not like that. That's not what it's about. The scriptures, by and large, are stories about people like us. People who God loves and who love God and who are trying to live out their lives in the light of those beliefs. And sometimes they get it very right, and by gum, sometimes they get it very wrong. 
One way we could perhaps see this uh, temptation is about lazy exegesis, lazy reading of the scripture, lazy exposition, or because we like the word hermeneutic in this church, don't we? A slipsod hermeneutic that ignores nuance of what doesn't really fit. What does that mean in normal everyday language? It's a temptation to interpret scripture in a way that suits me, in a lazy way, rather than going, oh, actually, this makes me ask questions of myself, of society, and maybe even of the text itself. You see, it may be true that one doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. But how do we avoid that temptation to find a nice little easy proof text that supports what I want to say? I think some of the ways we can address this temptation is through home groups where people can honestly discuss the scriptures, not necessarily in a formulaic way. When I was a teenager, you used to get these books and it would say, verse 3 says this, what does it mean? And that's formulaic, that's not helpful. But the kind of contextual Bible study, which we draw from liberation theology, from Latin America and places like that, where we read scripture and go, what does it say? How do you read it? Hmm, that's tricky. That kind of thing helps us to grow in understanding. And of course, how can I not mention academic study? We have <laughs> half the college here today, so you know. But seriously, one of the great things for me was when I had the opportunity to go to college and learn more about what other people think about the Bible that challenged and questioned some of what I'd been taught for years. But it's great. And of course, we learn together on a Sunday as we hear different preachers speaking what they believe God has laid on their heart. And there is a challenge for all of us, a real challenge, no matter how old or young we are, that actually we have to kind of half listen to learn and half listen to question. Oh, and then the extra half, so we'll have one and a half here, but hey, what? Allow God to be part of it. Historically, there was a sense that preachers were almost above God, I remember when I hadn't been here for very long, somebody said, you know, what I want is to sit at the feet of a great preacher. And I was thinking, oh dear, well, you shouldn't have called me then. Mm -hmm. I kind of get that. We've gone past that. We go together. We're just beggars sharing where to find bread, as some people say it. I think at the end of this section, what I want to say is, do not put God to the test, which is what Jesus says, but do test your ideas about God. Those who've known me for a long time, like 10 years, know I really hate promise boxes. I really hate anything where you have a nice little thing that you pull out and you go, yep, this is a message for me from God today. But what I do value, and people have given them to me over the years, is bookmarks with texts on. Because actually, they're there with me. And when it's a time that that text is helpful, or questioning, or whatever, It's there. And I can sit with it. I'm not just going, the word for today is this. What I'm actually doing is saying, yeah, this is a verse worth pondering. So I wonder, Benjamin and Michael, would you like to hand out some bookmarks to everybody, please? Um, If you'd like, start at the front and then work towards the back. That would be fantastic. You just give them the next one off the pile. They don't get to choose. Some of them are words out of the Bible, and some of them are words out of... Christians, um, bishops, uh, saints, clever people. And you just can take those away and stuff them somewhere. But I think on these cards are words worth pondering. They're not promises to lift out against a situation. They're things that are worth thinking about at some other time. Things about which we can wonder and at which we can stare.
The third temptation, at least superficially, is about world domination. You can have all this if only you bow down to me. If only you accept my ways of lying and cheating and abusing and distorting and deceiving. It's a temptation every much bit as real today as it was for Jesus back then. It's a temptation that international leaders face in a very public way and from positions of power and influence. It's a temptation that asks the question, what are your values and your ideals? Who or what influences the way you think? What is the most important thing for you? The response of Jesus, at least as recorded by Matthew, has a small but significant change from what's gone before. We actually see a progression running through Matthew's description. The suggestion to turn stones to bread comes from the tempter, a nameless, somewhat nebulous source. The idea to leap off the top of the temple comes from the devil, a generic term for an evil spiritual being. But now, in this third one, Jesus addresses the tempter by name and says, away with you, Satan. And I think that's significant. In these few words, Jesus calls the source of his temptation by its name. And by naming it, he takes legitimate power over it. If we can recognize and name the sources of temptation in our lives, the idols or ideologies that could lure us into paths that are ultimately self-destructive, then we stand a chance of overcoming them. As I was pondering this idea this week, I was very much drawn to the 12-step recovery programs that addicts often employ. And the first task of the addict is to name the addiction. They will say, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm addicted to drugs, or I'm addicted to gambling, or whatever it might be. By naming it, they begin to take power over it. But they also need to recognize that they can't do this on their own. And at the center of all 12-step programs is a recognition that this is done with the help of a higher power, which for most but not all people is God. And it's done in community. We work it out together. On our own, we would find this too hard. Together, we stand a chance. And it's not foolproof. There are people whose addictions are so powerful and so entrenched that they can't get out of them. I get that. I've lost cousins to alcoholism. I know it happens. But for many people, there is a real power to be gained in naming something for what it is, whether it's a practice or an ideology or an idol that ultimately is built on lies. It's not going to bring life. It's going to bring destruction and possibly death. The church, with a big C, has been and often is very good at pointing the finger at those it thinks has failed, whilst it ignores its own idols, its own unhealthy practices and ideas. Only as we begin to recognize them and name them are we able to take the steps to address them. Until you call it by its name, you can't deal with it. There is power in naming. And naming empowers us to change. There's a saying that's been around for a long time and yet has come very much to prominence in recent weeks following the untimely death of a woman whose life was lived in the media spotlight. And it's become, for some, a kind of a mantra. 
in a world where you can be anything, be kind. It's a really great saying. And it's really easy to say. It's not always so easy to do. Be kind. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to other people. Look for the best. Give compliments. Share smiles. Be generous. None of these is a huge thing. None of these is a world-changing thing on its own. But it can be life-changing for somebody to hear a compliment, to have a smile, to feel they are loved. Remember the stones? We're going to pass the baskets around. I'm going to invite you to take one, hopefully not the one you wrote on. And this is a little kindness for you. You might decide to keep it, and that's grand. Or you might decide you'd like to pass it to somebody else. You just take one and pass it, you pass it along. Otherwise, I'm going to drop them. Um, you might like to keep it. You might like to pass it to somebody else. You might like to leave it in a park or a cafe for somebody else to find. A word of hope in a world where you can be anything. Be kind. Almost every week in our church, we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. And the custom that we've been doing for six years, because I brought it back from my visit to New Zealand, which was just exactly six years ago, is to do it in our own language. And the form that we learnt, the form that is like a heart. I love the words that Nicola used, the form that is dearest to us. Fantastic. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that unites us with Christians around the world and the Christians through all times. And every time we say it, we say words something like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Which is great, but it still happens, doesn't it? The thoughts pop into our heads, completely uninvited. And actually, unless we're super-duper alert, it's very easy to find ourselves doing that thing again that we really didn't want to do. I'm always very grateful that the Apostle Paul said, I find it to be a, a law that the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do, I end up doing. He was as human as the rest of us. So let's name that. Let's recognize that we're human, that we don't always get it right. But you see, as I was reflecting, I found myself very much drawn to something that people often say to people at times of tragedy or illness. In fact, it was something that people said to me at various times when I was facing tough things, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Have you heard someone say this? God won't allow you to be tested beyond what you can bear. It's meant well. It's really meant well. It's meant to say, you know, you're not on your own in this. But actually what it feels like, or it does to me anyway, is, well, come on, put yourself together, chin up. It's all right. You're not on your own. So you're not allowed to be sad, and you're not allowed to be angry, and you're not allowed to struggle because, you know, God's not going to let you be tested beyond what you can bear. Well, actually, that's not what the scripture says. You have to put it back in its context. And it's actually a word of caution to people who might be a bit smug and think they've got it sorted. It's almost the opposite. So this is what the NRSV, put, how it says it. 
if you think you are standing, in other words, if you think you are strong, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that's not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with testing, he will also find a way out so that you may be able to endure it. So that's not what people say to you, is it? Actually, everybody has struggles. Everybody has temptations. God's not testing you, but God will help you through it. And maybe that feels a bit disappointing. Wouldn't it be nice if God just would take away all the temptations? Just give us an easy life. Well, even Jesus didn't get the easy life, did he? It says in the letter to Hebrews, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet came through it all. Having free will, which I believe we do have, not all Christians do, but I believe we do have, means we can make bad choices as well as good choices. We can listen to the seductive voice of temptation as well as to the quiet whisper of God's spirit. We've sung a chant many times this morning, and it reminds us that heaven and hell are close at hand. But in it all, God's living word, Jesus the Lord, follows where faith and love demand. Jesus walks with us in the temptation, through the temptation, out the other side of the temptation. And in this Lenten season, whatever it is for us, whether it's running to stand still or we're able to slow down for a bit, Jesus walks with us now. And Jesus walks with us always. And so it's right that we wonder and stare. Come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Let us pray. God of love, we lift up our eyes scanning the horizon. Where does our help come from? Jesus, our hope, we lift up our voices praising your name. Our help comes from the Lord. Spirit, our guide, we lift up our hearts seeking your presence, maker of heaven and earth. God of the wilderness, thank you for this season of Lent, for time set aside to journey with you, to reflect, to repent, and return with broken hearts made whole. For the many blessings in our lives, faith and love born from above, we give thanks. Lead us deeper into Lent, O God, that we might better see the places of our lives you wish to change. For when we take for granted the many daily blessings we enjoy in our lives and fail to share with others, God forgive us. You have called us to follow you to care for our sisters and brothers, the family of humanity around the world, to love not only in words, but in action. And in your love, we preview our own church community here in this place and on this morning. Today, we bring you especially Jenny, Paul Parsons and Mary Parsons, giving thanks for the fellowship that they and all of us share with each other. 
we bring you each other in our church community. Here we are, Lord, we've come to do your will. Here we are, Lord, in your presence we can be still. You are with us on our journey through Lent, on our journey through life. Put in the hallelujah in our souls, and to you we give our praises all. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God of the mountaintop and the plain. God of the wilderness and the city. God of all places and of this place. Accept the gifts we have brought, the gifts of our money and the gifts of our lives. And let all be employed to be and to speak good news. Amen. Lead us, Heavenly Father, lead us, or the world's tempestuous sea. Guard us, guide us, keep us, feed us, for we have no help but Thee.
Lead us on, loving God, assured of your accompanying presence. So whatever the days ahead may bring, we may rest secure in the certainty of your safe embrace, now and always. Mm -hmm.